This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg that were killed. I, I told my son, he said, well, how is it relevant to something you were learning? Kotanefesh, expiring. You're supposed to daven, you should die in service. <laughs> okay, now I get Really, there should be a whole board. <laughs> this one died in Baruch Ramad, his soul flew out of his body, and this one... Rabbi, when you say expire, are you talking about dying? Well... There's, uh, you, reach a, uh, you reach the edge, you reach a point where you're in danger of dying. Literally dying, your soul leaves the body, just like the two eldest sons of Aaron. They expired in ecstasy. They had this fiery love for God, and they expired in ecstasy. They wanted to connect with Hashem. They wanted to leave the human body and the human coil. Um, and you have to force yourself to bring yourself back. You have to force, force yourself to come back into reality. That's, that's, he talked about excelling in a love of Hashem, the, high, the gold standard of love, a fiery love, where your soul expires in ecstasy. It's in danger of expiring in ecstasy. And then when you're at the brink, you're about to go over the edge, that's when you tear yourself away and you bring yourself back. Excuse me, Ralph. How could they have gone in ecstasy if I thought they were being punished? As a matter of fact, the Torah repeats it four times, and it's actually, the Torah speaks about them in very beloved terms. To sanctify Hashem. Right, that they die because they came close to Hashem. But isn't there a midrashim that say they wanted to replace their father and all this and that? Uh, the midrashim, they were holier. The midrash says, Rashi brings, and Moshe says, they were holier than you and I. He says, Ataran. They, so they had no bad intent. They didn't want to, they didn't get married because they were married to God. They were drunk because they were drunk on godliness. Not, not that they went to the second so avenue. They, they had no bad intent? No bad intent. The, the problem is, and the reason why the Torah tells us it marred the joy, because the whole purpose of building a tabernacle is to draw God's presence into this world. Dying in ecstasy is the exact opposite, is the antithesis of the whole theme of that day, the whole theme of the Mishkan, the whole theme mission statement of a Jew is to make, bring God into the gold and the silver and to build a home and to fill your home and fill your life with a godliness. And on that day, the day of the dedication, they go and their soul expires in ecstasy. This runs contrary to the whole theme of what the tabernacle was all about. So maybe they were so tuned in, they should have known, but they were not ordered. After that, we were ordered, don't get too close. There's a boundary. Respect the boundaries. There's a glass ceiling. Don't, don't go over the edge. At the last moment, when you're at the brink, bring yourself back down to reality. But we do learn from them, from Nadav and Aviv, until today. And that's what the Torah repeats it four times, and, and the Torah says it very belovedly, in very, very loving terms, that we should learn from them. That really, we should reach a level of ecstasy. We should rather want, we should want to expire in ecstasy. But we discipline ourselves and we have to force ourselves to come back down to reality. But you need that, you have to constantly, you know, once you grow too complacent and too comfortable about being part of this reality, that's no good. We have to learn from the other of you. As we learned at the end of last, uh, last, uh, last week, at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 50, that the ethics says and ethics of our fathers. You fought by force... You live. You would rather die. But you're forced to live. And you're forced to die. You would rather live than you're forced to die. The simple meaning is we're talking about birth. The soul doesn't want to come into this world. That's why the baby cries. The baby's not interested. 
This fellow would rather remain in heaven. Why does it have to leave its heavenly perch, its pristine environment, and come into such a, a dangerous environment? So it's, the soul is forced into this world. On the other hand, once you're alive, you don't want to die. <laughs> you have to be forced out of this world. That's the simple meaning. But he says, on the, on the ethics of our fathers is not here to teach us that there's birth and there's death. Ethics of our fathers is coming to teach us how we're supposed to live. So it's also talking about on the personal level, on the deeper level, how we serve Hashem. On one hand, we would rather die in ecstasy. We reach such a level. such a, We excel in the love of Hashem. We reach the gold standard of love where your soul is so thirsty and so yearning and become so lovesick for Hashem until you're literally, your soul is in danger of expiring. You no longer want to be involved in the physical and be separated from Hashem. You want to overcome any barrier that separates you and Hashem. So your soul is ready to fly out of the body and to become absorbed with Hashem like a spark that is drawn to it towards its source. So you have to force yourself when you reach the brink, right before you reach the brink, right before you go over the edge, you force yourself, discipline yourself. Because you want to get close to Hashem. You care so much about Hashem. What does Hashem want to be? But Hashem wants you to come back into this world. So you force yourself to come back into this world. It's a tremendous struggle. It's very difficult. As, as difficult as the person who has to overcome a negative tendency. For the sake of Hashem, you have to break, bend your desire. You want to sin. You want to, want to follow your temptations. But because Hashem said, don't, you discipline yourself. And you don't cross the boundary. There's red lines you don't cross. Hashem says, don't steal, you don't steal. Even though you may be tempted to. You overcome your temptation. And so all the mitzvot in the Torah. So too, it's a tremendous discipline when your soul is about to expire in ecstasy. And there's nothing you wish more than just, just to escape. Escape your bounds, escape your prison, escape your confinement, escape your limitation, and become free. Become one with Hashem. But you stop. The last moment you stop. You restrain yourself. Only because Hashem said so. Because Hashem wants you in this world. It takes a tremendous discipline. And then the Mishnah continues. Once you realize that this is what Hashem wants then you do it with enthusiasm. You don't walk around with a sour face. Once you realize that this is what Hashem desires of you, Hashem wants you to live, and Hashem wants you to fill your life with holiness and with godliness. Therefore, you, you live with passion, with enthusiasm. So the mission says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't grow too complacent. Don't grow too comfortable. Now you have to force yourself by force. You have to force yourself to die. You have to force yourself to reach a level where you would want to expire, where you want to escape the confinement and the limitation of, of this world. Why? And this is a cycle that goes, an endless cycle that goes back and forth. It's like when you breathe, you breathe in and you breathe out. That's what keeps us alive. It's this dynamic of back and forth and back and forth. This is what enables us to fulfill our mission. A, it's, in, it's what enables us to fulfill our mission. To elevate this world and to spiritualize this world and to transform this world into a godly place. Because we would rather be elsewhere, but because we remember that we're Hashem's ambassadors in this world, we force ourselves to come back into this world. It's only when we would rather be elsewhere, when we're not complacent and content. We yearn to be with Hashem, one with Hashem. We're not part of this world. We would rather not be part of this world. That's what gives us the strength to come back into this world and to change the reality. That's number one. Number two, because this world has a tremendous grip on us. It has a tremendous hold on us. We are earthy beings and material beings, and we can't help, and we are social being creatures by nature, and we can't help but be affected by the world around us. And the world is a very powerful draw. Let's be honest, let's not kid ourselves. So, uh, the only way to keep your head above water, not to drown in the flood, the overwhelming flood that inundates us constantly, 24-7, especially today's day and age, if you don't have a connection to something greater, you will never be able to accomplish it. It's a beautiful story. Rabbi Meir of of Primishlan. Rabbi Meir of Primishlan was a great Hasidic master in Galicia, I believe, in Europe. 
and in the city of Premishlat. And he was very famous as a holy Jew, as a miracle worker. Now, in the town, there were young Jews who were, called themselves the enlightened ones. They were influenced by the enlightenment or the endarkment, but they considered themselves the enlightenment. And he threw off the yoke of heaven and he stopped being observant. And he was clever, too clever for that, to go for that old-fashioned lifestyle. And he decided, he took upon himself, actually it was a group of them, they took upon themselves to enlighten their fellow Jews. You have to love your fellow Jew like yourself. So instead of having the fellow Jews walking around in darkness and believing all these medieval tales about holy saints and holy Jews and, and holiness and Jews who observe Torah and mitzvot and holy, the miracle workers, they decided that they are going to enlighten them. Now one of the open miracles that the townspeople witnessed on a daily basis was that the only mikvah in town that was open for men was on top of a mountain. Now in Eastern Europe, in the winter, the mountains would get covered with ice, snow and ice, and it would be impossible to climb the mountain in the middle of the winter. But this Hasidic rabbi who never exercised, or never skied in his life, would just walk up the mountain every morning before davening, early morning, go to the mikveh and come down the mountain. And nothing ever happened to him. It was like an open miracle. So these young, this young group of enlightened, uh, so-called enlightened Jews, decided to show these people and teach these people a lesson once and for all, to stop believing in nonsense, stop, be, stop being conned by this old-fashioned rabbi. And they said, listen, Surely the rabbi has a trick. He knows how to, you know, ski up the mountain or ski down the mountain. It's common sense. There are no miracles. There's no God. There are no miracles. I mean, stop believing in this medieval nonsense. And to prove it, we are going to walk together with the rabbi tomorrow morning. Come watch, and you'll see that there's nothing miraculous. You're just a bunch of superstitious, old-fashioned people. And get over it and start living with a modern world. And, and get with the program. Anyway, so everyone came to watch the site. The rabbi leaves his house, and he's oblivious, and he's walking up the mountain, no problem. They all start walking up the mountain. Well, 30 yards later, one of them slides down the mountain, breaks his hand. One lasts another 30 yards. He slides down the mountain. He breaks both arms. Another, another 30 yards, the other one lasts another 30 yards, he breaks both legs. <laughs> anyway, they all, they all ended up in the hospital. Anyway, and Jews are in the hospital, it's a mitzvah in the Torah to visit the sick. So the rabbi, Rabbi Meir, Primashlan, goes to visit them in the hospital with broken arms and broken legs. <laughs> anyway, but you know, these young, youthful young people, you know, very brash, very chutzpahdik, and they say, come on, rabbi, listen. The people you can fool, you know, they're impressionable, they're gullible, but we know better. Tell us the truth. What's your trick? You have to have a trick. You have to have a secret. Maybe you know how to go up a mountain to ski up, slide up. How do you do it? The rabbi smiles. It's very simple. He says, when you're connected above, you don't slip. You don't slide. That's the trick. When a Jew is connected above, even when you're negotiating a very slippery mountain, life in this world is a mountain. And today it's a very slippery mountain, very steep mountain. And when you're climbing a mountain, you don't stop. Either you continue to climb up or you slide backwards, you slide down. You don't take any breaks. In life, either you're moving up, you're going forward, or you're sliding down. There's no stagnation. So if you're connected above, you don't slide, you don't slip. You go confident, you go forward, and you're able to negotiate even the ice slopes, icy slopes. It's cold, it's in the winter, it's dark and cold. And, and yet, you go confidently, and you go to the mikveh, and you purify yourself, and you come down, and you pray, and you go forward in life. So to... 
in order for a Jew to be able to fulfill his mission in life, to transform this earthy world, this dark world, and transform the darkness into light, and to transform this ice into fire, into, into something godly, a Jew has to be connected to something greater. So you have to achieve the level of Nadav and Aviyu. You have to have this, this inner movement in your life. And you would rather be connected with something godly and total, total immersion in godliness and holiness. But you force yourself to come back into this world. And then you come into this world, you do it also. You do it honestly and sincerely and passionately. And then you tear yourself away. Now I want to, I'm going to connect with Hashem. So you have to have that connection. It's like the miners. The miners were buried deep down. But they had a pipeline. They had a pipeline to the top. You have no, if you lose your pipeline to the top, if you're not yearning to connect with the essence of Hashem, you're buried. You're dead. You lost your pipeline. You lost your, your, your connection to life. If you don't have a yearning, a desire to escape, to go beyond your cave, and you're complacent and satisfied with the darkness, then you're already buried and you're already dead. How can you do tikkun olam? How can you bring mending into the world if you are the world, if you're already dead, spiritually dead and disconnected? It's only when you have a lifeline, when you're able to breathe, and you have a yearning to escape your prison then you're able to accomplish whatever you have to accomplish in the mines and under the ocean or whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Not, not, to be, uh, not to drown, not to be inundated by the flood. So this is the... That's why the ark, Noah's ark, is really the story of our life. The Baal said that the teva in Hebrew, Noah's ark is called the teva. Teva is also the word for the words and letters of prayer and Torah. What keeps a Jew, what keeps us from drowning, from being submerged by the flood, overwhelmed by the flood, the flood of life? Because we enter into the words of prayer and into the words of Torah. When a Jew enters into the words of prayer, you enter into it with all your might, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. Yes. Prayer is a very short time. After prayer, you have to go into the real world and you have to do what you have to do. But when you are praying, all that exists is the prayer. You and Hashem. You're totally connected with Hashem. Your mind is not elsewhere. You're not thinking of anything else. At that moment, when the Baal would pray, he wasn't even sure if he's going to make it. Because we enter into the words of prayer. And when he said the words, love Hashem with all your heart, and with all your soul and all your might, he experienced it. He lived up to it. And therefore, he wasn't even sure if he was going to make it. That's how you have to pray. So when you have that connection, when you have that life, that life link, that lifeline, then you have the ability to bring godliness into this world, to make a mishkan, to make a tabernacle. So that's what the Torah tells us about Nadav and Aviyu, because we need that. They're a role model, a positive role model. The only problem is that they went over the edge. That's the only problem. They didn't know when to stop. What they did was wonderful. What they desired is unbelievable, incredible. And that's our role model. We have to learn from them. But the Torah says they were not told. But we are told that they should have stopped. Stop at the edge. Before you go over the edge, stop. And come back. Nadav and Avi are the oldest oh, okay. sons of, of Aaron. Just, oh, you know, we're yeah. still talking about yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That was the end of chapter 50. Now we come to 51, page 763. This chapter and the next three chapters, the last three chapters of Etanya, is going back to chapter 35. So the whole Tanya is based on the verse... In Deuteronomy, that Moshe tells the Jewish people that to do the Torah and to do the mitzvot in thought, speech, and action and to do it with feeling is very close to you. And the Rebbe explained in the first 34 chapters how this is something that's very close to each and every Jew. 
In chapter 35, the Rebbe started explaining that the main emphasis in this verse is to do, is the action. That although the verse says to follow the Torah and the mitzvot in thought and speech, but the main, the main emphasis is to, do, to act, the mitzvah itself. And he brought the Zohar. The Zohar says... The Zohar says that King Solomon, on the verse, and King Solomon writes that the wise man, his eyes are in his head. The Zohar says, and people are not wise, where are their eyes? And everyone's eyes are in their head. What's King Solomon, the wisest of all men? What's the brilliant thing that he's coming to tell us here? The wise man, his eyes are in his head. So the Zohar explains... What King Solomon is referring to is the wisest of all men that your eyes should be on what's over your head. What's over your head? The Shekhinah, God's presence. That's why the men wear yarmulkes. Why do we wear a yarmulke, keep over the head? Because the wise man sees and perceives the godliness that hovers over our head. The Shekhinah, God's presence. And out of respect for God's presence, that's why we don't walk without a kippah. We don't walk without a yama. And this is also what King Solomon refers to in the other verse. When he says, Don't, um, don't avoid oil on your head. What does that mean? He says, this is a continuation of this verse. Because since God's presence is over our head, so God's presence is like a candle. A candle is made up of three parts, fire. You have the vessel, you have the wick. You have the fire. And then you have the oil that feeds the fire. So God is the fire. The Shekhinah, God's presence is the fire. The wick, that's the body, the person. So King Solomon is saying, in order to feed the fire that's on your head, don't forget about the oil. Make sure to feed this fire, to feed it with oil. Because if all you have is a wick, the wick will die very quickly. It won't sustain the fire. In order to sustain the fire, that the wick can light for a long time, you need oil. What's the oil? What's King Solomon referring to? So the Zohar explains, the oil is referring to Good deeds. Mitzvot. This is the oil. So he's saying, make sure, in order to nourish, to feed this fire, to sustain the fire that's over you, that's over your head, make sure to do many mitzvot. By doing a mitzvah, that sustains, that brings God's shechina, God's presence, that it should be over you. It should hover over you. And he explained, it seems like a very astonishing statement. Because... Every one of us has a divine spark, a soul which is a piece of the divine. Why can't that be the oil? Why do we need mitzvot to feed the divine fire, the divine presence? You have this holy soul is in itself is spiritual and it's holy and it's a divine, has, has a piece of the divine essence, which is its core and essence. So why isn't it enough that I am a Jew and I have a Jewish soul and I have this neshama? And I have the soul, and that should be enough. Why do I need mitzvot to feed this fire? Why do I need to light a Shabbos candle? Why do I need to put on tefillin? Why do I need to give tzedakah? Why is all this important? Let me just sit and meditate all day and all night. And I can tap into the spirituality within me. And that's enough to sustain the divine presence. And the Zohar says clearly, no. This is not the oil. The oil that sustains that could be absorbed in the fire, is not your soul, but the good deeds, the mitzvot. So your soul is not oil. Your soul cannot be consumed and cannot become absorbed within the fire. What could be absorbed in the fire, in the flame? The mitzvah. Why? The mitzvah seems to be tangible. It seems to be material. The soul is pure spirit, the spiritual. And yet the soul is not oil, cannot become absorbed and unified with the flame. The, soul, the person is like a wick. 
and you needed the oil to feed the flame, and only the oil could become absorbed within the flame. What's the oil? The mitzvah, the material mitzvah, the tangible mitzvah. Why is it? And he explains, because the soul, even the soul of a tzaddik, of the most highly evolved, the most spiritually developed human being, the highest person, the highest level, person who reaches the highest level of consciousness, the complete righteous man, the saint, the holiest person alive. His soul is still an entity. So there's a separation between the soul and God. The soul cannot become absorbed within God. There's a barrier. Because there's an eye. Even a spiritual eye, a, holy, a highly evolved eye, but there's still an eye. Well, the soul is not the oil. The soul cannot be absorbed within the flame. What could be absorbed within the flame? The mitzvah. Because although the mitzvah is tangible, but the mitzvah is divine. This is God's will. This is God's will. So therefore the mitzvah is God. This is what God wants. So when you do the mitzvah, it's the mitzvah that has the ability to bring you, to cause you to become absorbed within God, to become one with God. Not your spirituality, not your meditation, not your religiosity, not your intensity, not your intention, but the physical deed, the mitzvah. And he says, this is true of all mitzvahs and the studying of Torah. But it's even more so with the mitzvah. As it says in the Zohar, what's the oil that feeds the flame? It's the deed. Not the thought. When you study Torah, you're using your thought. It's not even the speech. When you say words of Torah, you're using your lips. You're moving your lips. When you pray, you're moving your lips. There's an action. But he says specifically through good deeds, which involve action. Why? And he goes on to explain because the whole purpose why God created this world is because God desired to have a dwelling place in this physical, material world. He wanted an abode, a home, where you can feel at home in this world. Because God wanted us to take the darkness, to take the dense material existence, and to transform it into something godly and holy. So it's only when we do the mitzvot, especially when we do the physical mitzvot, we take the leather hide of the animal and we write a Torah scroll, and we write a mezuzah, and we do the mitzvah. We take the match and light the candle. And we all the physical mitzvah, that's how we bring Hashem into this world. But then he said, on the other hand, in order to fulfill the mitzvah properly, a person's intent is very important. How you do the mitzvah is important. You have to do the mitzvah passionately. The mitzvah has to be alive. You can't just do the mitzvah mechanically. By rote, you have to be alive, you have to be passionate, you have to be conscious, you have to be connected, you have to be awake, you have to be alert, you have to be excited about the mitzvah, you have to be, enjoy the mitzvah, you have to love the mitzvah. And it's only then, but again, the, this intent, this love and awe are like the wings that cause the bird to fly. The bird, that's the mitzvah, that's the intent. That's what feeds the oil, that's what brings Hashem's presence into this world, it's the mitzvah which is God's will, the physical mitzvah. But in order to do the mitzvah properly, just like in order for the bird to fly, you need wings. In order to fulfill the mitzvah properly, you have to imbue the mitzvah with fervor, with passion, with love, and also with a sense of awe, of Hashem. It's only then that you can properly do the mitzvah and fulfill the mitzvah. As he he went into great detail, explaining and elaborating, a few chapters he explained the idea of awe of Hashem. And then he spent many chapters till through chapter 50 explaining the, the different levels of love of Hashem, etc. Till last week we learned of the gold standard of love, which is the fiery love, which is the love that leads one to ecstasy and to literally want to expire, where the soul wants to expire. Okay, this was all the lead-up to chapter 51. Now, in chapter 51, he's going to elaborate a little more specifically on that Zohar that he quoted in the beginning of chapter 35. Because the Zohar says that what is the oil that feeds the fire, the flame, which is the Shekhinah, God's presence, 
It's the mitzvah. And specifically the physical mitzvah, the concrete, the action, the active mitzvah. The physical action. Now, in general, we know that oil, when the Zohar refers to oil, oil represents the level of wisdom. It's even mentioned in the Talmud that when Job lay siege to a city in Israel, because Sheva ben Bichri rebelled against King David, after King David put down the rebellion of his own son, Avshalom, Sheva ben Bichri declared another rebellion against David. We have no portion in the son of Yishai, in David, and we have no portion. And King David sent his, um, his chief general, Yoav, to lay siege against the city. And he said there was a wise woman who spoke to them. And he says, why are you going to destroy the city? What do you want? And he said, all we want is this rebel. And she convinced the people, the citizens, to kill this rebel. And they chopped off his head. And and the city was speared. So it says that she was a wise woman. So the Talmud says, why was she wise? Because in this city, they had a lot of olives. They had a lot of oil. They used a lot of oil. You know, in Israel, olives are very popular. (laughs) It's a main dish here. Here they just use it to put into martinis. (laughs) Um, So even the Talmud says that oil is connected with wisdom. A lot of wisdom in oil. Especially the Zohar always refers to that oil is connected with wisdom. So it would seem that oil feeds the fire. Oil is connected, associated with a level of wisdom. And here we say that oil is, refers to the good deeds, action, active mitzvot. Not even the thought, or not even you moving your lips, the speech, but, mo- but uh, primarily the deed, the action. So how do you reconcile with, in general, when we know that oil refers to wisdom? So that's what he's going to start to explain in this chapter. He's going to explain in the next three chapters. The title page of Tanya tells us that the entire work is based upon the verse, For this thing, the Torah, is very near to you, in your mouth in your, and in your heart, that you may do it. And the concluding phrase, that you may do it, implies that the ultimate purpose of the entire Torah is the fulfillment of the mitzvah in practice. In order to clarify this, chapter 35 began to explain the purpose of the entire chain of descent of spiritual levels from the highest emanation of the Creator down to our physical world, and of man serving Hashem. Purpose is to bring a revelation of Hashem's presence into this lowly world and to elevate the world spiritually so that it may become a fitting dwelling place for His presence. To further explain this, chapter 35 quoted the words of the Yenuka in the Zohar that a Jew should not walk four cubits bareheaded because the Shekinah dwells above his head. This light of the Divine Presence, continues the Zohar, resembles the light of a lamp, where oil and wick are needed for the flame to keep burning. A Jew should therefore be aware, says the Zohar, of the Shekinah above him and keep it supplied with oil, good deeds, in order to ensure that the flame of the Shekinah keeps its hold on the wick, the physical body. Basing himself upon this analogy of the Zohar, the Alter Rebbe asks, in the same chapter, why the oil, fuel, for the light of the Shekinah has to be good deeds. Divine soul is truly a part of Hashem above. Why is it not sufficient to serve as this fuel? He answers that the divine soul, even of a perfect tzaddik, is a conscious entity. His conscious existence of the soul does not become utterly overwhelmed and nullified by Hashem's presence in the world to the extent that the soul can become one with Hashem's presence. 
Therefore, the soul cannot serve as fuel for the light of the Shekhinah, for the oil must become totally converted into light. Just as a physical fuel is consumed, as it burns to become converted into light. Whereas the soul remains in conscious existence, only good deeds, mitzvah, can serve as a fuel for the light of the Shekhinah, for they are God's will and his wisdom which are expressions of his essence and thus utterly united with him. For the soul to become united with God, with Hashem, it must therefore perform mitzvah. In this union of the soul with Hashem, through mitzvah, chapter 35 continues, there are two levels. Through Torah study, the light of the Shekhin is revealed within the soul, together with the soul's two inner garments, thought and speech, which become absorbed into Hashem's light and united with it in utter oneness. But for the Shekhinah to rest upon the physical body and upon the animal soul that animates it, mitzvot must be performed in actual deed on the physical level. And this can take place only through the medium of the animating or vital soul together with the body. In further chapters, the author Rebbe explains how the ultimate purpose of the entire Seder Hishtalshalot is the practical performance of mitzvot, which alone can reveal Hashem's presence in this physical world. From there, he went on to say that in order to observe the mitzvot properly, with enthusiasm and soul, one must have kavana, devout concentration animated by the awe and love of Hashem. And in chapters 41 to 50, the Alter Rebbe proceeded to elaborate on various means of arriving at the different forms and levels of awe and love of Hashem. Chapter 51 now explains further the teaching of the Yenuka that this light of the Shekinah needs oil. In the Zohar, oil usually refers to the sphera of Kachma, wisdom. Here, though, the Yenuka takes it to refer to good deeds. What is the connection between practical mitzvot and oil, which refers to Kachma? To, cl- to clarify this, chapter 51 will explain the meaning of the concept that the Shekhinah dwells or rests upon something, and how practical mitzvot do indeed derive from the divine level of Kachma, which is why they can serve as the oil which enables the light of the Shekhinah to remain burning upon the wick, the human body. For a further explanation of the words of the Yanuka mentioned earlier in chapter 35, where the Yanuka was quoted as saying that the light of the Shekhinah dwells upon a Jew, needs oil, meaning good deeds. Now, what connection do good deeds have with oil, which usually refers to kafma? It is necessary first to explain so that one may understand a little the concept of the Shekhinah dwelling, that it dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Indeed, there are detailed laws defining the marks of respect due to the Holy of Holies because of the dwelling there of the Shekhinah. It's not just the symbolic. There's actually a holiness that's present in the Holy of Holies. And therefore you have to behave a certain way. Even the high priest is never allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies with the exception of Yom Kippur. There was actually a presence that was there in this room, in this Holy of Holies. So it's, it's, it's like an indwelling, a dwelling inside the Holy of Holies. And the question is, continue. And likewise, any other place where the Shekhinah dwells, what does this concept mean? What is meant when we say that a particular location is distinguished as being a dwells rather than elsewhere? Surely the whole world is full of His glory, and no of Him. What's the idea of holiness? What, what do you mean that the Shekhinah is present here? God is only present here. God is present everywhere. There's no place empty of God. That's a very basic belief in Judaism. And every Jew believes it with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body. It's a gut knowledge that we have that Hashem, whether we understand it or not, that Hashem is everywhere. There's no space empty of God. So what do you mean Hashem is, Hashem has an address? Hashem is limited to a geographic location? So much so that we pray, we physically pray. When a Jew prays, you point, you face Jerusalem. And if you're in Jerusalem, you face the Temple Mount. If you're in the Temple Mount, you face the Holies. If you're the Holies, you face the Holy of Holies. What, why? I'm praying. I'm doing something spiritual and yet I physically face the Holy of Holies. What do you mean? God is present in this, in this, uh, this little space? I mean, God is everywhere. God is, transcends time. God transcends space. God is not limited. Even an idea, 2 plus 2 is 4. 
Right? If someone told you 2 plus 2 is 4, is found on 419 E77th Street. It's absurd. A concept transcends time and transcends space. It doesn't exist in this generation and doesn't, it doesn't have any address. It's everywhere. 2 plus 2 is 4 is not only an American concept, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a concept everywhere. Except, except maybe in the Congress, but uh, everywhere in the world, this is a concept, an objective concept. <laughs> it's, a, it's an objective concept that exists anywhere in any place. So that's that's concept. We're not even talking about something spiritual, just an idea. An idea is objective. It transcends time and space, let alone something spiritual. Spirituality transcends time and space, let alone something godly. Hashem, Hashem is everywhere. So how can you say, well, this is a holy place. This synagogue is a holy place. This is, this, and there are laws. If it's holy, you have to treat it a certain way. So what does it mean? What do you mean Hashem is here? And Hashem is not outside the synagogue. Hashem is not there. And outside Jerusalem and outside Israel and outside the Temple Mount and outside the Holy of Holies. Hashem is everywhere. So what's the idea of holiness? What does it mean? Hashem is present. Hashem is present everywhere. So in order to understand this, the Alter Rebbe will introduce a concept. This is based on what Job says, that from my flesh I know God. And this is a very important idea. It's actually a revolutionary idea. That from my own personal experience, I can know God because we are created in the image of God. And therefore, everything that we personally experience is really a reflection of above. And that's why this type of knowledge is a very profound type of knowledge. Because when you know something abstractly, intellectually, it, it's, it's abstract. It's not personal. But when you know something experientially, from your own personal experience, from my own flesh, I know God, it's personal. It hits home. It's not distant. It's not abstract. It's, it's something you can relate to. It's something you can feel. You cannot just understand it. You can actually feel it from the inside out, just like you know yourself from the inside out. So suddenly you get a feeling for godliness. You have a whole different appreciation. It's not just an insight, an interesting concept, an interesting idea. You have an inner feel, an inner insight into Godliness. And that's why God created us that way. We're created in the image of God in order that we should be able to relate to God from our own personal, personal experience. One of the greatest Lubavitch Chassidim, his name was Rabbi Hilo Parich. So when he learned, when he learned this chapter in Tanya for the first time, he was blown away. He says, you know, growing up, not in the Hasidic home, or not, in the, not in the Chabad home, I always looked at the body as the enemy. The body? I can learn something positive from the body. The body is my enemy. The body is coarse. The body is crass. The body is selfish, self-centered, is egotistical. All the body cares about is me, myself, and I. And, and that all the body is interested in having fun and enjoying itself. The body is my enemy. The body doesn't allow me to serve Hashem. doesn't allow my soul to connect doesn't allow me to fulfill my purpose in life. The body interferes. The body is getting in the way. I have to destroy the body. I have to destroy the enemy. I have to check the body and put it in its place. But now, Alter Rebbe says, open my eyes. Alter Rebbe says, from my body, from my flesh, I know God. From my own personal experience, I can extrapolate. I am the microcosm. And from the microcosm, I can understand that the same is true with the macrocosm. As the Talmud says, just like the soul fills the body, so too God fills the world. Suddenly I looked at my body with a whole new respect, newfound respect. It's not just negative. I can learn so much. I can learn to experience godliness. I can learn to relate to Hashem. I can learn to connect in a very personal, meaningful, experiential way. To know Hashem, to feel Hashem. So suddenly, instead of Myself, looking at myself, instead of looking at this world as a dark place, suddenly I look at this world as filled with opportunities for me to get to know Hashem, for me to experience Hashem in a very profound way, in a very personal way, in a very meaningful way. So this 
one sentence is one statement. And this is his, his introduction to the rest of the chapter. You want to understand Hashem, first you have to understand yourself. If you understand how your soul works in relationship to the body, you'll understand how Hashem creates and sustains the world, how Hashem relates to the world. The other Rebbe will now explain the Shekhinah dwelling upon something means the revelation of that aspect of God's presence known as Shekhinah. Although God exists everywhere, His existence is concealed. But when the Shekhinah dwells upon something, this denotes the revelation of God. Of course Hashem is everywhere. But what's the definition of the word olam, which means world? What's the definition of the world? Olam comes from the word concealment, to hide. Hashem is everywhere, but He's hidden. He's concealed. We don't perceive Him, we don't feel Him, we don't sense Him. We're completely oblivious to Him. What does Shekhinah mean? Hashem is present. Hashem is felt. Hashem is palpable. Hashem is tangible. Hashem is transparent. It's not hidden. It's clear. See-through. That's the definition of holiness. That's the definition of Shekhinah. When Hashem is present. And that's true, that, that's true not only of space, a place that's holy, but time and space and souls are all connected. Also, you have a time. A time that's holy. Yom Kippur is a holy day. And Wednesday is not holy. Hashem is here not only on Wednesday, not only on Kippur, Hashem is present also on Wednesday. Hashem didn't go anywhere on Monday either. Just like a Jew has to behave on Yom Kippur, you have to keep Shabbos, a Jew also keeps Tuesday. There's a way a Jew behaves on Tuesday. Hashem is everywhere, all the time. But nevertheless, there's a holy day. Shabbos is a holy day. A holiday is a holy day. Yom Kippur is the holiest day. Because on this day, Hashem's presence is felt. On a Wednesday afternoon, it's difficult to feel Hashem. When you walk down Park Avenue, it's difficult to feel Hashem. When you're in a holy place, then it's easier to feel Hashem. Hashem is more accessible. And the same is with a holy person. Every one of us has that spark, the divine spark, has that faith. But a holy person, a tzaddik, a saint, is someone who's is transparent, it's palpable, it's tangible, it's accessible, his godly spark is accessible. He feels it, it's all over his face, you, can, you feel the radiance, you see the radiance, you see Hashem's presence on his face, you see how Hashem is with him. That lamp over his head, by us, we, we barely feel it, even with the yarmulke. But you look at the face of a tzaddik, you feel that lamp, you feel that, that heat, that warmth, it radiating, it's light with energy. With the divine. So that's the definition of holiness. And in order to understand this very well, he says the way to understand this is from our personal experience. Okay, continue. However, the key to understanding the subject is so to be found in the text. And from my flesh, I see God. He's quoting Job. Job chapter 19, verse 26. Job is saying... Mipsadi, from all these terrible things that happened, that happened to Job. Eloka here, Rashi says, means the judgment of God from my flesh, because I was stricken, and I was. So I see the judgment of God from my own flesh. I see how I was stricken, so I see the judgment of God. That, that's the simple meaning. He's talking about his personal, um, his personal travails. You know, he, was, he went through the pain of Job. But the Rebbe says that the verse here means something very profound. What it means is, literally, from my flesh I'm able to see God, from my own personal experience. From the relationship of my own soul to my body, I'm able to understand and to extrapolate from the microcosm, I'm able to understand to extrapolate to the, to the macrocosm. Kasha. Okay, continue. Yata really understands these words literally. From what we see within ourselves in 
our own soul and body. We can visualize the parallel of the spiritual level in the divine creation and the world in general. Because whatever we see or hear on the outside is nothing in comparison to what we personally experience. We're more certain of ourselves, we're more certain of anything that we experience internally than anything in the world that we taste or touch or smell, anything on the outside, anything that's external. You're more certain that you exist when you wake up in the morning. You don't have to see yourself in the mirror to know that you're there. You don't have to hear yourself sing in the shower to know that you're there. You know, you just wake up. You're so aware of yourself. <laughs> you're there. Who, who, you haven't touched yourself yet. How do you know you're there? You're certain. You just know yourself. You're more certain of yourself than anything in the world you, can, you, you touch. That's external. This is internal. This is the deepest type of knowledge. It's experiential. It's personal. So King David, so that's why Job is saying that from my flesh I know God. It's the deepest type of experience. It's to know Hashem from the inside out. Just like I experience in my own personal self the relationship of my soul to my body, I can understand the relationship of Hashem to this world and how real it is. Although you can't see Hashem and you can't hear Hashem and you can't touch Hashem, you can't experience God through the five senses. But just like you don't, have to t- you don't have to experience yourself through the five senses. You're so certain of your own reality. Because you are yourself. You feel it. You experience it. So you understand that the same is true in the macrocosm. Even though I can't see God and I can't hear God and I can't touch God. But I'm more certain of God's reality than anything scientifically that I could touch and taste and measure and bring to the laboratory. Even though I can't drag God to the laboratory can't put him under a microscope. But I'm more certain of the reality of Hashem from the inside out, just like I'm certain of my own reality from the inside out. This is a very profound understanding of the reality of Hashem. You know, these, all these wise scientists who are all running, running over, jumping over themselves trying to declare that they don't believe in God and you know, they can't bring God into the laboratory and they can't put him under a microscope and they have no, no scientific need for God. But it's, it's, Job is saying, you know God from yourself, just like yourself. You're more certain of your own soul, even though you've never seen your soul, you've never heard your soul, you never, you're more certain of the reality of self, which is intangible, than anything in the world you can take to the laboratory and measure and slice and dice and categorize. That's all external. This is from within. Life comes from within. All the scientists in the world can create the life of a fly. Life is divine. Life comes from within. And we experience that self, that soul. And that's our reality. That's the basis of our reality. So from this I understand that the same is true with this world. Even though I can't experience God through the five senses. But you're more certain of that truth than anything external. Science deals with mechanics, external. All the mechanics in the world is not equal life. Life is not a building block of putting together mechanical things and coming up with life. That's not how life works. Life comes from within. Life is divine. And it's because there's life. Therefore, as an expression of life, you have all these externals. You have the body that comes as a result of the soul, not vice versa. It's not not mechanistic. It's not deterministic. It's something within. It's divine. Just like everything else that we experience from within. When you speak. Speech is not something external, mechanical. It's not like learning to play instruments. You know how difficult it is to learn to play violin? It's nothing in comparison to the difficulty of learning how to speak. Take a, a special needs child. Talk to speech therapists that have to deal with a special needs child. Or someone, God forbid, who had a stroke or lost his ability to speak and has to relearn how to speak. You think playing violin is difficult? It's so much more difficult to coordinate what goes into speech. Everything we take for granted, we don't even think twice about. We can go through our whole life and are clueless how we move our lips, how letters are formed. We have no idea. Ask anyone which letters come as a result of your tongue touching your palate, the palate of your mouth, and which letters come as a result of your lips moving. you have any idea? If you learned it, if you thought about it, yes, but most people go through their whole life and they speak and speak and speak and they have no clue and they don't even pay attention. 
It's not even conscious effort. It comes automatically. You don't even have to think about it. It's so naturally. It's not like playing music. Music doesn't come naturally. You have to learn. You have to study. You don't have to learn and study how to speak. Unless, God forbid, a special needs child is someone who's lost their, their natural ability to speak. So it's not a, a mechanical event. Speech is a spiritual event. You decide to say something, you have an idea, and your soul wants to say it, and wants to communicate this idea, and the body automatically just performs virtuoso performance, which is so complex and so complicated, much more complicated than playing the violin. And we do it automatically. Everyone does it. Six billion people automatically, naturally, simply. Just do it. So obviously the physical is just an expression of the spiritual. It's not the mechanics that creates the spiritual. It's the spiritual, the soul that brings the body, not the body that brings the soul. So this whole scientific, mechanistic, external approach to life, we know intuitively from our own personal experience that it's simply not true. It's simply not so. This world is not a mechanical event, mechanical building blocks. It's something that's beyond science and beyond mechanics and beyond... It's something that can't be sliced or diced or brought into the laboratory. It's something from within. And the material is just an expression of that soul. So the soul is primary. And the body is just an expression of the soul. That's how we experience ourselves from the inside out. You know, the doctor... The doctor doesn't know that there's something wrong with you unless he sees the symptom. And many times, most times, by the time you see the symptom, the illness has been festering already for years, not decades. But we don't have the equipment that's sensitive enough to pick up until many times, until maybe even too late. And 50% of the time, if not higher, doctors completely misdiagnose the problem. Because they're only looking at externals, at symptoms. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. The patient doesn't need any symptom to know that something is wrong. You just don't feel right. Many times, years ahead of the doctor. The patient says, I don't know, but something is wrong. I just not feel it. I'm not talking about hypochondriac. But something real. The patient feels that something is not right. And the doctors are clueless. They have no idea. We don't see anything wrong. But something is not right. Because from the inside out, you don't need anything external. You just experience it from the inside out. You feel something is not right. You don't feel right. Something is wrong. But externally, the scientist, the doctor, he needs something external. If he doesn't see anything external, he doesn't know what you're talking about. He has no clue. But everything originates from within. And it manifests externally. It manifests in the body, but it starts with the soul. And that's how we experience ourselves from the inside out. And we're more certain of that intangible self, of that soul, more than anything in the world that we can taste, touch, or smell. And from this we understand, from my flesh I know God, that the same is true with Hashem. That God is the soul of the world. And everything in the material world is just a manifestation of the spiritual. Just like when a person cries, right? The scientist, the able scientist, is able to take the tear to the laboratory and is able to dissect it and measure it. And... But of course, he missed the whole point. He missed the whole punchline. Because what is the tear all about? Sadness. The sadness. But the sadness you, you can't put under the microscope. <laughs> you can't take the laboratory. But he doesn't see it. So the scientist says, I deny anything I can't see, I deny it doesn't exist. A fool. The world's greatest fool. Not the wise man. But the world's greatest fool. What's the symptom? The, the, the tear is just a symptom. It's what you can see. That's the dynamic. That's what's really going on from within. In your soul. The symptom, what you do see, is the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So to everything in this physical world, everything that we see, all the phenomena that we're able to see and measure and categorize, all this is the tip of the tip of the iceberg. This is just the physical manifestation of something within, of something spiritual. 
of the divine. So this shifts your whole way of looking at this world. From my flesh, I know God. Suddenly, it changes the way you look at this world. It trains you to look at this world differently. Like we learned earlier, emunah, faith, comes from the word in Hebrew, training. You have to train yourself, because it's counterintuitive. Because we are wired to think in a very mechanistic, deterministic, cause and effect way of, of the world. Like very external look at this world perspective. From the outside looking in, that's the way we're wired. It takes training to reorient yourself, to retrain yourself, to start looking at the world from the inside out. Seeing the hand of Hashem in everything. Everything that happens is really divine. And the physical is just a manifestation. So yes, of course, you have to operate in a natural way. And if there's an illness, you have to go to the doctor. And if you have a financial problems, you have to go to the financial, uh, the financial consultant. Of course. But don't forget for a moment that that's just a symptom. Primarily, your focus should be on the root cause. Anything that happens physically is just an external symptom of what's happening spiritually. And if you want to really change something, not just change the symptom, but really change it at the root, you have to address the spiritual aspect. So if there's illness, there's financial difficulties, or any difficulty or challenge that a person has in life, primarily a person davens, intensifies his prayer, increases his learning, increases his sadaka's charity, and changes, does soul-searching, changes himself, improves himself. And then he goes to the doctor. At the same time, you have to go to the doctor and you have to do everything else in a natural way. But don't for a moment confuse the vessel and the vehicle and the, and the symptom with the root cause. So you have to operate in a natural way because that's what God wants us to do. But at the same time, we have to remember that if we'll, the healthier we'll be spiritually, the deeper we'll deepen our connection with Hashem, that will also change and that will also help us alleviate and make sure that the doctor will be a good messenger to bring healing if we need healing and the financial consultant will be a good messenger to bring financial relief or whatever it is that we need they're just messengers and emissaries but the, everything ultimately comes from Hashem therefore the deeper we're connected the more we're connected with Hashem automatically that will also help everything we need so this, this totally reorients changes our whole perspective on life from my flesh, I know God. Okay, so based on this, this he's going to go, we're going to continue next week, he's going to explain something very profound, that just like the soul, and how the soul connects with the body, so we'll also understand how Hashem connects with the world, and how Hashem animates the world. Uh, to be continued, but anyone has any questions before we conclude? Shekhinah is, is the presence of Hashem. But you're aware of it. Right, right, hidden. right. Shekhinah is right. When Hashem is okay. manifest, is open, is revealed. So what actually is the, the Kippah for? Because, because since the Shekhinah hovers over our head, the lamp, the light, out of respect for Hashem, we cover, we cover our head. What about women? But where is the, yeah, but where, oh. yeah, what about women? Because the women have, have this naturally. The women don't need, just like in general, the women don't need that external kippah. They have that an internal kippah. Amuna, faith in Hebrew, is feminine. Because by a woman, it's natural. You know, we need the external reminder to bring us to that level. The respect is not clear on why that shows respect. For the, the kippah. You're in the presence of Hashem, you're in the presence of greatness, you're in the presence of Hashem, and uh, also it's that, to remind you not to worship your own mind. See, many wise people, especially wise people, especially um, intellect, Ashkenazic intellectuals from Eastern Europe, um, have too much of a respect for themselves and worship their own mind and forget that there is something greater than yourself, there's Hashem. That's way beyond all our brilliance and all our intelligence. And there's something much greater than us. So it's a reminder, a humbling reminder to humble us that there's something over our head. Our head is not 
yeah. God, the ultimate arbiter and the ultimate God, that we do worship God. We worship something greater than ourselves, greater than all of us put together. So to humble the mind, the mind needs the most humbling. A foot is a natural soldier. You don't need a, a kippah on the foot. But the head needs a kippah. The head needs a little reminder to put in place. Otherwise, the head can grow very arrogant and haughty, you know, with your, with your nose up in the air. And, and you forget, for a Jew, the smarter you are, the more creative you are, the more humble you are. The more you realize how little you know. And where it comes yeah. from. And where it comes from. Where the source of creativity comes from. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.